Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, President Joseph Kabila of DRC confirmed that his country does not need any support for its elections and health experts say that efforts to fight TB globally is shameful. In sports news, South African national under-20 football team qualified for the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Zimbabwe's Foreign Minister, Sibusiso Moyo, says the ruling ZANU-PF has transformed itself into a party that respects the rule of law since the overthrow of former President Robert Mugabe. Moyo's statement comes a week before presidential and parliamentary elections in Zimbabwe. It says before Mugabe was ousted last November, the country was heading for anarchy. ZANU-PF has gone through a metamorphosis of cleansing itself and renewing itself. And therefore, whilst it has got uh, an unchallenged past of liberating this country, it has renewed itself to position itself as the party of the future. Egypt has rejected a controversial law adopted by the Israeli parliament that defies the country as the nation-state of the Jewish people, warning that it undermines peace efforts. The law adopted on Thursday also defines the establishment of Jewish communities as being in the national interest and downgrades Arabic from an official language to one with special status. The Israeli legislation was also condemned by the Six-Nation Gulf Cooperation Council, comprised of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. Israel has rescued 400 members of the White Helmet Civil Defense Group and the families trapped in southern Syria. However, there are still many people who were unable to reach the evacuation zone close to the Golan Heights. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports. This was an extensively planned operation to evacuate hundreds of White Helmet members and their families from southwest Syria, where regime and Russian forces are closing in. They were driven to the border of the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights, where Israeli soldiers took them into Jordan. They'll now be resettled in countries including the UK, Canada and Germany. Nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, the White Helmets is a volunteer defense force that says it saved the lives of over 100,000 people. Afghanistan's Vice President Abdul Rashid Dostam has returned to the country more than a year after he left amid accusations of involvement in the kidnap, rape and torture of a political rival. Within minutes of his convoy leaving Kabul airport, an explosion occurred near the main entrance, killing at least 10 people. The BBC's Catherine Davies reports. Crowds of people, including high-ranking officials, had gathered on the tarmac to welcome General Dostum. There was tight security for the event, which was broadcast live on television. But minutes after his convoy left the airport, an explosion occurred. The blast is said to have gone off near the main entrance, where people had also been waiting. General Dostum's return, and the reason he left, has been a subject of much speculation. He went to Turkey after accusations of involvement in the kidnap, rape and torture of a political rival. He's denied any wrongdoing and insists he was in Turkey for medical treatment. And finally, South Africa's National Police spokesperson Vishnu Naidu says police are working tirelessly to establish the motive for the killings of 11 taxi operators who are members of the Kempton Park Mbombela Taxi Association in Madrand, north of Johannesburg. The 11 were among 17 people traveling back to Johannesburg after a funeral in KwaZulu-Natal province. The shooting took place on Saturday evening. Naidu has condemned the killings, describing them as senseless an incident that I think must be condemned in all 
possible terms by everyone in South Africa. Uh, this is totally uncalled for. Uh, and of course, uh, the National Commissioner has directed, as you rightfully said, that uh, we want these suspects arrested within 72 hours. There was a, we relying heavily on our intelligence environment that they are working tirelessly to establish exactly who are responsible or who were responsible for the, for the attack on this, uh, on this taxi carrying mourners from a funeral, funeral in KwaZulu-Natal. And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. President Joseph Kabila has confirmed the Democratic Republic of Congo doesn't need any support for its elections since from now everything will be funded by the Congolese government. Kabila made the statement last week when he addressed the Congress on the state of a nation. He repeated the DRC doesn't need instructions from foreign countries but welcomed advices from friendly countries. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. President Joseph Kabila's speech was very expected not only here in the Democratic Republic of Congo but also by the whole international community. Addressing the Congress on the state of the nation, Mr. President raised several points in a speech of a kind of outline of his last 17 years as the head of this country. Joseph Kabila used the opportunity to insist that starting to now, the DRC government will be funding all this country's elections and doesn't need any support and this country is no more ready to take instructions but only advices from friend countries are welcome. President Joseph Kabila. I reaffirm that as from today, elections here will be really a matter of sovereignty and so they'll be fully funded by the Congolese state. It's not a matter of self-sufficiency or of arrogance, but a responsible political option making sense to our independence and our national dignity. The civil society has looked at President Joseph Kabila's speech as not a very good one since the Democratic Republic of Congo is part of the international community and there is no way this country can be isolated. According to this National Secretary of the Nothing Without Women organization, Solange Lwashiga, Mr. President's address was like an arrogant one since the DRC can't be proud to reject any partnership from other countries. I think that that's a difficult speech. It's not a good one. I think that we cannot reject a partnership. What he said yesterday, according uh, to me, really... It's not good to say what you want being arrogant and being boastful. Really, I don't side with him. And I think that uh, any kid can live alone without uh, on either. But the country itself, uh, DRC, can make effort. Saying that we don't want money. We don't know what uh, the exact uh, amount of money has to fund elections. We are sitting pretend organizing elections without any help from foreign countries. This member of parliament from the ruling coalition believes President Kabila's speech was wonderful since the Democratic Republic of Congo is not ready to act according to what foreign countries want. Medar Auchai. I'm very, very happy that he remained firm, calm, independent and equal to himself. We won't accept the people who give us money and want us to do exactly what they want. Never. Three elections are expected here same day on December 23rd and candidacies for the president position are to be handed to the electoral commission as from 25th this month up to 18th of August. And indeed, most of people expected President Joseph Kabila to put it clear he wants
won't be a candidate for another term, but Mr. President disappointed as he didn't put a single word on that, he only repeated he will respect the Constitution. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. To Cameroon, where conflict between government troops and anglophone separatists has forced many women to take on a role usually left to men, that is, digging graves to bury the dead. This is happening in parts of the northwest region, where many men have fled their communities, leaving women, mothers, to search for the corpses of their children and community members for burial. It is a taboo that has now been broken. The BBC's Randy Joe Saha in Cameroon has been investigating. Belo in northwest Cameroon was once a bustling commercial and farming community. Things have since changed. The smell of death is lurking everywhere and hundreds of families have disappeared into bushes or relocated to distant towns. Wild grass invading their homes. A huge number of youths have also become what they call Ambazonia freedom fighters. Soldiers have been drafted into the area and the consequences are dire. Deaths and war atrocities have been recorded on both sides of the conflict. It is in Belo where a video probably recorded by soldiers emerged depicting four men being tortured. Their bodies were later found extremely mutilated. Nawain Futunga, a 60-year-old mother of five, fled her ancestral home, Belo, and is now in Yaoundé. She made the decision to go the day a child was shot dead. You had to carry the boy to the hospital. From there, I was scared. I did not even go back. This has really been terrible for you. Yes. So women in Belo, in Com, have been taking part in helping wounded people. Yes, so many, so many of them. Because the men were running because they were scared of the gunshots. It was terrible. So women are now playing the role of men? Yes. They are digging graves to bury their relatives because they are no men. Is it their culture that women should be digging graves no. to bury the dead? No, it is not our culture. They have no choice. It's very shocking. One time Bello was smelling because of the dead bodies lying all over. That's why it made them to be digging graves and bury them. So these dead bodies all over, how, how did they come? Who killed them? It was soldiers who killed the people. In nearby Jinekejem village, women are lamenting. They are seen in a new video digging a grave for a man believed to have been shot dead. The women fished out his body from a river. The search is still on for two other corpses, they say, were swept away by the current. In this area, traditional matters surrounding the dead and burials are left to the men. Women are not supposed to have anything to do with it. And some customary leaders like Yerima Kinisom, a prince of the Kom Kingdom, thinks it will bring the region even more bad times. A woman is not supposed to manipulate the corpse according to our tradition. And when it is happening like that, it is going to provoke a calamity. So now we have to do a second cleansing because of what is happening with the women at this moment. I can best express you what is happening with a song of lamentation, a song that tells you that there is melancholy all over the land. In northwest Cameroon, the African traditions and customs are still very much intact. But the new burial experiences in Com are also being recorded in other areas as the Ambazonia conflict drags on. That report by the BBC's Randy Joe Saha in Cameroon. Efforts to fight TB globally have been described as shameful. Governments, donors and civil society have been criticized for not doing enough to prevent and fight tuberculosis. This has emerged at the TB 2018 conference in Amsterdam, Netherlands, ahead of a 22nd International AIDS Conference, which starts this evening. The TB conference has been held under the theme Bridging the TB and HIV Communities. Tabilim Bele reports from Amsterdam. Tuberculosis or TB is one of the oldest diseases discovered more than 200 years ago. 
It's curable, yet it continues to kill millions of people globally each year. Blessi Kumar is a community activist in India. With 4,600 deaths each day globally, our response, I'm sorry to say, is shameful. The number of people who are dying is far more than natural disasters that happen. I was reading up about the tsunami recently, and the deaths from TB are like six tsunamis every year. It's like 13 jumbo jets crashing every day. But I don't think our response matches that. The World Health Organization estimates that more than 400,000 people are newly infected with TB in South Africa each year, and over 100,000 of them are not diagnosed. South Africa is on a mission to identify the unknown TB cases, as Deputy Director General in the Health Department, Dr. Yogen Pillay, explains. We've now expanded it to try and find at least 160,000 of the global one, just over 4 million people who are missing from our treatment programs. So we in South Africa, and uh, the NTP manager is in the audience, Mr. Mameja, we are committed, he and I, to find at least 80,000 of them between now and the end of March next year. Sustaining funding for further research into TB as well as stigma are some of the major challenges in the TB response. South Africa is conducting the first ever TB prevalence study to identify people living with TB in the community. Professor Kangilani Zuma is from the Human Sciences Research Council. For the first time in South Africa, we're doing the first ever uh, TB prevalence survey together with the uh, Medical Research Council, uh, National Department of uh, Health, as well as our partners at WHO. This is a first ever survey which will be targeting 55,000 people in South Africa. And we really would like to encourage our South Africans when they are approached by our data collectors to open their doors and uh, have a conversation with them about the survey and participate in the study. Meanwhile, BRICS member countries have committed to invest more financially towards ending TB. They've promised to prioritize the TB response in their countries. Dr. Pillay explains. We've just come out this week from a BRICS health ministers meeting and we've had a very successful meeting on two counts with respect to TB. The one is that they've all signed up to attending and getting their heads of state to attend the high-level meeting in September to, and have been very... Uh, very useful in facilitating the um, organization of a BRICS TB research network. And we are very encouraged by the fact that members of the network have already met thrice and there's a commitment from the BRICS countries to financially support the network as well. Heads of state will gather at the United Nations General Assembly in New York in September this year for the first ever high-level meeting on TB to accelerate efforts in ending TB. I'm Tabile Mbele in Amsterdam, Netherlands. After seven devastating years, the war in Syria may be drawing to a close. For the last month, the Syrian government has been battling to take back control of most of the southern half of the country, and they have now cut a deal with the rebels to end the fighting. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians have moved to the northern province of Idlib, the last opposition stronghold in the country, and many aid agencies fear a humanitarian catastrophe if it's attacked by President Assad's forces. The BBC's Martin Patience has been speaking to people in Idlib who thought they had escaped the war. Four months ago, Diana Lynn felt she had no choice. Get yourselves ready to go downstairs. They're getting closer. She and her family in eastern Gota were put on a bus and driven to Idlib province when President Assad's forces retook the suburb. The Syrian government is using Idlib as a dumping ground for the opposition. People, generally, they're, they're depressed. Um, some people uh, feel so desperate that they even think they, about going back to the Syrian regime. Uh, if Assad does come in, it would be devastating for us, and I'm not sure what we would do. The Syrian government says they're all terrorists. In fact, most are civilians. But there are violent jihadists, and they're fighting amongst themselves. We hear car bombs, and we hear fighting with heavy weapons. Afafa Najjar is a medical student, 
And she fears the Syrian government will use the extremists as an excuse to crush the last opposition stronghold. I don't want to be bombed here in Idlib. I get very afraid. I ask the world to help us here in Idlib. We are not terrorists here. Not all the people have weapons. And many Syrians opposed to President Assad believe the world has forgotten them. This is Abdul Kafi Hamdo from the Eastern part of Aleppo. This English teacher first spoke to us 18 months ago. Injured people on the streets, no one can help them. People who are in the rubble because of the bunker buster rocket, they just die with pain. Days later, he left Eastern Aleppo for Idlib as government forces advanced. But now, like many others, he fears he can't outrun this war. Every child, every woman, Every man is worried about the expected attack of the regime. We don't know where to go. We don't have a lot of options. We can't stand with living again like slaves under the regime. We are going to choose death. As the BBC's Martin Patience reporting from Idlib in Syria. South Africa's National Police Commissioner General Ketlas Tole has given a team of top investigators 72 hours to trace and arrest killers of 11 men in Colenzo in the Guazulatal Midlands. The 11 deceased and six survivors belong to the Ivory Park Taxi Association in Midrand, Johannesburg. They were on their way back to Johannesburg after attending a colleague's funeral at Madimatolo in Guazulatal when unknown gunmen and ambushed and killed them using automatic rifles. The appointed task team will work under the command of the Guazul-Natal Acting Commissioner Ntlantlam Kwanazi. Ntlantlangele reports. 17 taxi operators were returning to Johannesburg after attending the funeral of a colleague at Matematolo near Greytown when their taxi was ambushed by unknown gunmen. The 11 deceased belonged to the Ivory Park Tax Association in Johannesburg. Community members in Colenso say the area resembled a war zone as the taxi came under attack from gunmen who were allegedly hiding in the bushes between Colenso and Winnen. We were fast asleep when we were woken up by thunderous bang of the rifles. Though we could not see clearly all the parties involved, but we have noted the balls of fire in the skies. The shooting lasted almost 20 minutes. As community members, we are living in fear after this incident. There are pints of blood splashed all over the stretch of road. KwaZulu-Natal MEC for Community Safety, Liaison and Transport, Mkolisi Kaunda, visited the crime scene in Kolenzo. They attended the funeral of Mr. Mtembu, who was shot uh, in Tembisa in Houten. Uh, as provincial government, we are also interacting with other provinces uh, through inter, inter-provincial committees that we have established. And uh, we are indeed going to be liaising with our colleagues in Houten uh, to make sure that we support one another on the issues of the Even the violence that has taken place uh, over there in Houten, Guazul-Nadal uh, government have been involved. So in this regard... Uh, we are also confident that um, uh, the decisions that have been taken by our counterparts over there to shut down some operations of uh, other associations is going to yield positive results. And uh, we are hoping that this will come to an end. National Police Commissioner General Kehlas Tolle says a high-level team is working around the clock to ensure that the perpetrators are arrested. The investigative capacity that was put together together with intelligence to work on this particular matter, there's maximum deployment uh, which will suffice for us to work quickly towards cracking this particular case. Meanwhile, the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Police has condemned the killings. Chairperson of the committee, Frank Wapokman, explains. While the committee is cognizant that the proper investigation needs to be undertaken, we're certain the firearms utilized in perpetrating this. It's almost certain that illegal firearms were used. The incident of last night is a further indication that violence in the taxi industry has long reached crisis levels in the country and multi-sectoral intervention strategies must be implemented to effectively deal with the scourge. The committee welcomes the activation of a 7-2 action plan by the National Commissioner. The motive behind the killing is unknown at the moment and no arrests have been made as yet. 
I'm Tlatangwele in Ladysmith. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party, the BJP, has successfully defeated a no-confidence vote in Parliament. The Prime Minister's party won the trust vote with a comfortable majority, Nihapunya reports. After a debate that went on for over 12 hours, India's ruling party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, has defeated a crucial trust vote in Parliament. A defeat in Parliament would have meant that the government of the day would have had to resign. Prime Minister Modi won that trust vote with a comfortable majority of the 451 members of Parliament who voted, 325 voted in Mr. Modi's favour. His party actually only needed 226 votes to win. This was something that had been anticipated because the BJP is the single largest party in Parliament, but Friday's trust vote was less about the numbers and more about the optics. This was an attempt by the opposition to attack the government ahead of the 2019 general elections where Prime Minister Modi will be seeking re-election. Through the debate that preceded the vote on the no-confidence motion, we saw the opposition attack Prime Minister Modi over issues of unemployment, the state of the economy, the agrarian crisis, rising crimes against women and children and attacks against the minority communities, the issue of mob lynchings, something that has claimed over 20 lives in the last few months in India, was also raised. The opposition also accused Prime Minister Modi of corruption over a deal the Indian government has signed with the French aviation company Rafael to buy 36 fighter jets. Now, This was an allegation that the French government has also refuted. Prime Minister Modi, in a two-hour-long speech, not only rejected all of these allegations, but also highlighted his government's successes in the last four years of governance. He spoke of how his government has electrified India's villages, provided health care for all, increased the income of farmers, provided pensions to soldiers, and helped India become the world's fastest-growing economy. Prime Minister Modi claimed the no-confidence motion was nothing but an attempt by the opposition to unseat his government. He accused them of being greedy for power. The highlight of today's proceedings, though, was uh, nothing to do with politics, but an impromptu hug at Congress Party Chief Rahul Gandhi, the head of India's oldest political party, gave Prime Minister Modi. Mr. Gandhi walked right across the parliament floor. After he accused Prime Minister Modi of misgovernance and hugged him on camera, the Prime Minister was caught looking very surprised by the gesture. And Mr. Gandhi said that this hug was proof that while the Congress stood for peace, the BJP has been spreading hate throughout the country, a reference perhaps to many right-wing groups who support Prime Minister Modi who have been accused of committing crimes against minorities. The hug was also an attempt uh, to perhaps mock Prime Minister Modi who's uh, known for his penchant for hugging world leaders whenever he's on foreign tours. Neha Punia, New Delhi. Youth from all over Africa gathered at South Africa's Freedom Park in Pretoria to form a youth movement that will work towards solving some of the challenges facing the younger generation on the continent. The African Youth Network Summit was hosted by the Grasa Marcel Trust and the Mandela Institute for Development Studies. Grasa Marcel, who attended the two-day summit, gave the decision to form the continental youth body the thumbs up. Neil Makwiting reports. Wrapping up the summit, Marcel urged the African youth movement to restore the dignity of Africans. She applauded the youth for taking the step to create something that will serve not only the youth but also the communities. All the ideas which were discussed, some of them are already clear and you have adopted them. That's fine. Even if you had adopted only 10% of the discussions, I would be completely happy. Because, you know, history, history is built by one brick, another brick, another brick. History is not built by a building which you start and you complete in two days. You are privileged to have this space and these opportunities, but please carry in your hearts that there are millions and millions of your brothers and sisters who don't live in dignity. And that is your mission. Marshall says the success of the newly established youth movement rests in their hands. In 10 years time, where do you want this continent to be? And then, that's when you say, this is where we want to be, and then to be there, we have one, two, three steps. 
and you build on this. Am I making myself clear? If this movement is successful, you are the one to take pride and to take credit. If this movement fails, you are the one <laughs> to take the responsibility for it to, to fail. Among the speakers was former minister Jane Aidu and prominent African poet and author Professor Oles Oinka. Naidu says the time has arrived for people on the continent to ensure that they elect leaders and government who will listen and serve them. We were full of hope and full of triumph, the optimism, but we show signs of a failing state today. I look at Africa and I look at 54 countries acting like 54 fiefdoms where the leaders that lead us believe they have some divine right to rule us, the God president. Because we allow them. They say, we deserve the leaders we have. Real democracy and real freedom is when a government fears the people. A dictatorship is where the people are afraid of their government. So stand up and say you've had enough. Some of the delegates who attended the Pretoria Summit say this is a dream come true for them and they are proud to be part of the Continental Youth Movement. The message I'm taking home today is that if you can visualize something in your head, you can manifest it in reality and take it home. 18 months ago, a small group of young people came together to say, how can we come together to form a youth network to impact and transform our communities on the ground? Today, many months later, that, that, that group has almost multiplied by 10 in size, and we've held our first big conference we've launched. So I would like to encourage the youth at home, if you can dream it, you can envision it, you can act on it, make a plan, make it happen. I actually learned quite a lot today. I learned that um, there's quite existing networks already on the continent that we're needing to plug into. What I've learned from this um, is for the fact that young people are active and I've realized that it's not only just one person who is willing to make a change, but there's a lot of young people around Africa who are actually willing to make a change. And that's by then that us getting together in this sense will actually amplify the youth activism around Africa. Michelle also appealed to the youth to jealously guard Africa's resources. I'm Nermakwiti in Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Zimbabwe's Foreign Minister Sibusi Samoyo says the ruling ZANU-PF has transformed itself into a party that respects the rule of law since the overthrow of former President Robert Mugabe. Egypt has rejected a controversial law adopted by the Israeli parliament that defies the country as the nation-state of the Jewish people, warning that it undermines peace efforts. And Cuban lawmakers have approved a draft of new constitution that would seek to modernize the nation by recognizing the right to own private property and opening the door to the possible legislation of same-sex marriage. Those are the stories making headlines. India's government easily won its first no-confidence vote at the weekend, but it was in disarray as opposition leader Rahul Gandhi rewrote the nation's political narrative as he grabbed and hugged Prime Minister Narendra Modi in Parliament after a strong attack on his right-wing Hindu regime. Ranasen reports. It was supposed to be a fixed match thanks to Modi's parliamentary majority versus the ragtag opposition. The world was not riveted to the 10-hour-long filibustering in parliament, but a defining moment that grabbed attention of the global media and world leaders. Rahul Gandhi walked over to Modi and grabbed him in a beer hug. Back to his seat, the fourth-generation Sion of India's most famous dynasty winked into the cameras. But did Gandhi turn the table on Modi, asked his Congress party colleague Gaurav Gogoi. Fortunate to see that the Prime Minister who goes around the world hugging world leaders, hugging Prime Ministers, sitting on a swing with the Chinese Premium, did not seem to reciprocate the gesture with ease. 
and that just shows the anxiousness and what do they have to say when the prime minister and then does a yoga posture on a rock what do they have to say when the prime minister holds a stick and gingerly treads on stones sitting on swing with chinese premier hugging all world leaders breaking protocol all the time barack obama donald trump and french leader emmanuel macron have all fallen into modi's signature beer hug the only exception has been german chancellor angela merkel who twice in the past refused to even shake his hand former un diplomat shashi tharoor likened the no trust vote to a t20 match it's been highly impactful it's very striking that at the beginning the minister of parliamentary affairs said that you can't have too much time because it's like a limited overs match well like a t20 match rahul gandhi hit the ball right out of the park he hit sixer after sixer it was a very very impactful and successful speech modi's bjp party is setting up next year's election as a presidential style contest between the experienced prime minister and an untested challenger and although rahul gandhi seems to have had a makeover right wing author shantanu gupta felt it would be an unequal fight for a political party the biggest boost is electoral victory which are which are not happening we have seen rahul gandhi's launch relaunch relaunch and at time and it's not working in fact the whole no confidence motion was looking like a again the relaunch of rahul from the parliament floor but again the only news that came out of the newspapers is the hugs and the wings and the blooper he did for the french diplomacy which may become the problem in two nations in the coming days but gandhi won the first round hands down the hug made him a media darling and indians listened intently when the opposition leader insisted his congress party was all about love as opposed to the hate he said modi and his bjp party was spreading this is zana sen reporting from new delhi The first ever international conference of the Girls Brigade to be held in Africa opened in Livingston, Zambia yesterday. The week-long event that has brought together more than 350 delegates from across the globe is meeting under the theme Fruitful and Overflowing. Hilda Akekelo filed this report from Livingston. The delegates from all the five regions of the world looked colorful in their blue and white uniform. And when opening the conference, Zambia's Vice President Inongewina said as a Christian and a gender activist, she believes the female youth should be active participants of any decision-making process. She said similarly, as a country, Zambia has enshrined into her constitution values that include morality and ethics, patriotism and national unity, social justice, equality and non-discrimination. She appealed to the global body to further inculcate these values into the female youth worldwide as important principles for their leadership roles in future. It is therefore gratifying to note that today, 125 years after the Girls' Brigade was founded, its objective still remains relevant and important as the brigade continues to mold the female youth into responsible patriotic and empowered citizens who will be able to effectively contribute to peaceful resilience and enrich the morals across the world i know it's not easy to achieve this but if we start with the young ones our world will be safer I wish to appeal to you to inculcate these values into the female youth worldwide as important principles for their leadership roles in future. The month of July marks the 125 years of the Girls Brigade existence worldwide. In an anniversary message to the delegates, International President Vivian Edson narrated how it all began. 100 and 25 years ago in rural Ireland life was hard especially for young women education was a privilege that few enjoyed living conditions for most were quite basic and there was little chance of any woman rising to a position of leadership Enter Miss Margaret Little. 
She was what many would call an ordinary young lady. She worshipped her God at Sandymount Presbyterian Church. And her greatest joy was to tell the girls and young women in her Sunday school class about Jesus. And when the girls were distracted by the cold, she bravely decided that she would begin her session with activity and exercises. Many of the church officials frowned on such an idea in church, but she persevered. She stood her ground, and soon more and more young women were coming to her class. She called them her little brigade, and GB was born. We want to give thanks for the past, especially for the pioneering women who began this work and who took the work to the five corners of the world as represented in this gathering today. From Europe to the Caribbean and Americas, to Africa, to Asia, and on to the Pacific. To those women we would say with our Father God, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Girls Brigade Zambia was introduced by missionaries in 1950s. Since then, the movement has grown in numbers, reaching the current 20,000 spread across 15 churches. Girls Brigade Zambia National President Dorothy Chimpambwe said it is an honor for Zambia to host such a prestigious and highly acclaimed convention of the faith-based girl-centered organization. Zambia being who we are, the third world country, we feel now that our voice will go out there and it will fall on ears that will be able to rise to the occasion and support our cause. We, we hope to network with a lot of other organizations out there, especially the attention of government who have since promised that some of the measures they hope to implement is to introduce um, girls brigade programs in the school curriculum. For us, that is something we look, we're looking forward to because we believe that a girl child that is growing up with the knowledge and fear of God will be a responsible adult when she grows up. And education for us is cardinal because that is the, the beginning of a girl child empowerment. So we're very grateful. Apart from that, we feel that we are able to be called upon wherever there's a challenge affecting the girl child and especially issues of girl child abuse, early marriages and all these other issues. We feel that we don't operate in isolation anymore because we have come out in the open. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. South Africa's University of Johannesburg has some of its subjects being recognized in the 2018 Global Ranking of Academic Subjects released by the Shanghai Ranking Consultancy. The system evaluates more than 1,000 institutions in about 83 countries across 54 subjects and five broad subject areas. The university's hospitality and tourism management is ranked 20th in the world, a remarkable climb of 14 places from last year's global ranking of 34. Professor Chilidzi Marwala, the Vice Chancellor and Principal of the University of Johannesburg, says this is good news for the institution. We are actually quite excited about this because uh, it indeed indicates that the work that we are doing, we are doing it well. It is a tribute to our students and our staff who have put all this effort to make sure that we are a world-class university. What criteria is being used in this uh, ranking system? And tell us briefly about uh, the ranking system in itself. This is the first global ranking system that was ever uh, produced. It's called the Shanghai Ranking System. And it looks at various elements as far as uh, the provision of higher education is concerned. One of these elements is the quality of education that we offer. The second is the quality of our academic staff. How many of them have uh, doctoral degrees? It also looks at the research output, the impact of the research output, the quantity of, uh, of the research output, the quality of the research output that we produce. 
this is the knowledge that we produce, you know, that uh, hopefully is being used uh, by our key stakeholders. And in terms of the university, which subjects have made part of the list? And, and what really about those specific subjects, um, uh, Professor, do you think would have made them stand out that way? One example is the hospitality and tourism management. Uh, last year, we were ranked number 34 in the world. This year, we are ranked number 20 in the world. Um, this is where we train people to to manage the hospitality industry. This will include uh, elements of management, it will include elements of uh, the real hospitality, whether it is tourism, whether it is, it is basically that industry. So we did very well. We are in the top 20 in the world. Uh, sociology, we are number 150 in the world. Communication, we are number 300. We are in the top 300 in the world. Political science, we are in the top 300 in the world. Earth scientists, we are in the top 300 in the world. Education, we are in the top 400 in the world. And uh, physics, the top 400 in the world. The difference uh, on our part, what have we done, which is really a question. We have invested quite heavily on the quality of staff. That's Professor Chilidzi Mahwala, the Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Johannesburg, speaking to Kumutomo Pulani. Our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. Good morning. Namibia's Labour Resource and Research Institute Director, Micah Cooper, says the government has not engaged stakeholders enough regarding the implications the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement has on the country. Akuba says that the country did not consider the various protocols contained in the agreement in detail for Namibia to have a clear understanding of it. Nigeria has not yet signed the agreement because it decided to consult extensively with stakeholders. Nigeria chose one of the world's top international issues to unveil its plans for a new national flag carrier, Nigeria Air, with a glitzy launched aimed at attracting foreign investors. Aviation Minister Hadi Serika says Nigeria Air will take off in December with 15 leased aircraft. He says the talks have been held with manufacturers Airbus and Boeing to buy new aircraft. Qatar and Ethiopian Airways have been muted as possible investors. A joint committee comprising officials from the Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa, Comesa, will oversee implementation of the recent extension on sugar imports safeguards and determine at the end of two years whether to renew it. This is a departure from the normal practice where Kenya, through the Ministry of Trade, had to negotiate for the safety nets that limit the quantity of sugar that member states are allowed to export to Kenya. But despite the numerous extensions, Kenya is far from meeting some of the conditions that have been set before opening the subsector to imports. There is speculation that South Africa's uh, power utility Eskom will shed more light on corruption when the hard-pressed organization releases its 2017-18 financial results this morning. In its last briefing, Eskom announced it had raised gross borrowing of 320 million US dollars since January. Eskom's group chief executive Pagamani Hatebe says they have made difficult decisions to turn the organization around. Hatebe says domestic and foreign investors have now come on board. Eskom is however seating with uh, seating with a huge municipal debt amina akram reports in its last briefing the group executive announced that escom is looking into turning around the organization Khadebe also announced that they are looking at ways to reduce the blotted stuff component and other ballooning expenses escom's past financial briefings have mostly revealed declines in their statements in the previous financial year, sales revenue declined to 95 billion rands and net profit after tax also declined to 6.3 billion. 
ESCOM has also been downgraded by rating agencies, thus making borrowing of cash more difficult for the company. The U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, says he wants to try to stop countries importing Iranian oil by November as part of continued economic pressure on Tehran. Speaking in California to opponents of the Iranian regime, Pompeo said corruption was rife amongst the country's elite. The bitter irony of the economic situation in Iran is is that the regime uses this same time to line its own pockets while its people cry out for jobs and reform and for opportunity. The Iranian economy is going great, but only if you're a politically connected member of the elite. The level of corruption and wealth among Iranian leaders shows that Iran is run by something that resembles the mafia more than a government. The U.S. dollar trades at 1017 Botswana Pula. It's at 982 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 377 Brazilian roll. And it's also trading at 6312 Russian ruble, 6852 Indian rupee, 667 Chinese yuan, and 1338 to the South African rand. 76 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,232. Platinum $826 an ounce. So the price of Brent crude oil at this point is at $72.90 a barrel from an African perspective. Figilalingwati up next with our sports update. First up in our sports update this hour, it's South Africa and Sri Lanka in Colombo. It's lunchtime now, and South Africa is 246. For the loss of seven wickets, the target is 460 for them to overturn and draw the test. Remember, Sri Lanka is determined to knock over the remaining South African wickets as quickly as possible. South Africa beat Malawi to qualify for the 2019 Africa Under-20 Cup of Nations, which will take place in Niger. Tabiso Munyane and Komamelo Godisang's goals were enough to put a smile in coach Tabo Sinong's face following a hard-fought victory in, at Bingu National Stadium in Malawi on Saturday. Sinong's team had a bye in the first round and beat Mozambique 4-1 on aggregate in the second, drawing one all away and winning 3-0 at home. The Blitzborg slammed to a shock 29-7 semi-final defeat against England at the Sevens World Cup in San Francisco on Sunday and went on to win the bronze. This was not a good performance by the Blitzborgs. They were outplayed by England, who controlled possession excellently, won the breakdown battle and were more composed in defense. The Blitzborgs were left to fight for the bronze medal against Fiji later when they bounced back to win 24-19 and a bronze while England went down 33-12 to New Zealand in the final. And South African rugby side Lions coach Vase the Brain praised his entire team for an all-round performance in the 40-23 win against the Jaguars in the Super Rugby quarterfinal clash at the Emirates Airline Park in Johannesburg. The Brain says they opted to kick off for goals more often in this particular game so as to get the scoreboard ticking, which they did so successfully. Yeah, you see, it's a bit different. Uh, we had six times in the, in, in, in the pool games that we went for posts today we went about four, four, five as well so it was the first it was at the right time I did try and say last week when the guys did ask me oh, are you not going for posts it's a, it depends on the situation and it depends on the scoreboard and stuff like that so it was nice and uh, to get the, the points on the board we're very pleased and very humble with this victory it was a good one so it was all over performance I thought Jaguarish coach Mario Ledesma considered that the tries scored by Lions in the first half made the difference between his side winning or losing. Yeah, too easy now. I think, well, that, that was the difference at, at the end of the game. I thought the, 
they didn't have to they didn't have to work too hard to score those those tries, especially the last one that that interception. But um, we gave them away, and we weren't playing our style of footy. Uh, we were just too loose on the ball. We lost lost or delivered wrongly from lineup scrum. We weren't we weren't too clinical in that in that first half. But uh, it's always difficult to to run from behind, especially over here in the altitude. Seven's inconsistent returns at the Rugby Sevens World Cup in San Francisco has disappointed a chunk of their fans on social media. Shuja, as the team is affectionately known, who progressed to the semi-finals of these competitions in the last two editions, have had the tournament to forget this time around, losing twice and winning just one match. In the opening game, Innocent Simui's charges posted a 19-7 win over Tonga. The Kenyans then somehow let a 26-0 lead slip through their fingers to fall to a shocking 31-26 defeat to Scotland, a result that saw them eliminated from the main competition. Shuja then lost 14-24 to Lowly Island in the Challenge Cup quarterfinals, an outcome that has left the Kenyans fuming. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. President Joseph Kabila of the DRC has confirmed that his country does not need any support for its elections. And health experts say that efforts to fight TB globally is shameful. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Lebumula Mukhulu and Khomutso Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is Harare with a track titled Party. Moving right.